All right, so we were on page five. <clears throat> a potential homework application of, of this principle that singleness, like marriage, is not necessarily a lifelong gift or calling. We can encourage people who desire to marry, to talk to other mature believers in their church family about that desire, to seek their prayer with you, to ask for their counsel on practical ways. It's okay to be very practical and active in the way that you pursue marriage, I think, for men and women. Although that will look a little differently, I think it, there's, there's a place for active pursuit um, both ways. Ask for a counsel on practical ways you could pursue this good gift of God, perhaps even ask for their help. Now, in saying that, some might, in light of 1 Corinthians 7, get a question along the lines of, does an active pursuit of a spouse contradict the heart of contentment that's called for in 1 Corinthians 7? And Paul specifically says, do not seek a wife. And I'm telling you, it's okay to really seek a wife. <clears throat> I mean, so I know the next verse, Paul says, I have not sinned if I end up marrying. But is that meaning that I shouldn't necessarily try to pursue one, but it's okay if it ends up happening somehow anyway? I don't think that's what it's saying. A couple of things. You can think about how to understand this word seek in this chapter in the same way the word is used in Jesus' teaching on anxiety. In, for example, Luke 12 or also Matthew 6. In Luke 12, 29, Jesus taught, do not seek, same Greek word here, do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Now we know that does not mean we should not plan for how we will eat. We shall not, it doesn't mean we shouldn't actively pursue Physical provision it doesn't mean we should even work very hard to obtain food and drink. That's another principle of God's word. We should. The point there is that the ultimate concern that we have, our chief preoccupation, our greatest desire is for God and his kingdom. And similarly, I think singles, we can say, can and some should pursue Actively, they, they should plan for how they might find a spouse and, and actively take steps toward finding one and perhaps even work hard in some ways to obtain one. But, but the ultimate concern and preoccupation and desire must be fixed on God, God's kingdom, God's righteousness. Okay, let me remind you again, the, the rule of 1 Corinthians 7, let each lead the life God has assigned and remain Remain, remain. That, that's not a rigidly inflexible rule. The example of that was in verse 21. Slaves are told to remain in the condition in which they find themselves. Be faithful and content. But they were also told they should take advantage of opportunities to become free. Verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If slave was your social status, don't worry about it. We could translate that. Don't be anxious about it. This again resonates with the teaching of Luke 12. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. But even as freedom from slavery is not to be your ultimate concern and desire, hey, definitely, if you can gain your freedom, go for it. 
I think the same principle we, we can apply to marital status. Are you single? Don't be concerned about it. Focus most of all on faithfulness to God and fellowship with God. But if you can gain a spouse, you can avail yourself of that opportunity. If you desire, go, go for it. Now, in, in, in saying this, I want to add another principle, which I said briefly before, but um, it, it's worth saying again that marriage is normative in the Bible, meaning most believers will and should marry. That, that's God's plan. I think that's evident here in 1 Corinthians 7, but, but also if you think about the other shorter letters of the New Testament, Colossians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, all right, in, in what's often called the household codes of those letters, they address specifically husbands, wives, children, slaves, but not singles, right? And the implication of that, I think, is, is that just that marriage is normative. Uh, this is what will be most common. Now, saying that, that doesn't cancel out everything else we've said so far about singleness. It's still a grace gift of God. It isn't strange, but we should try and maintain the balance of the scriptures in, in building a biblical perspective of singleness. So we don't need to be afraid of affirming that marriage is the biblical norm. And it's okay to remind people of that too when talking about um, their pursuit of marriage. Okay, so, so the first three points we've looked at so far. Again, I said at the end of last time, I think there's a really beautiful balance in this perspective I think it's freeing. I can accept my current singleness as a good gift from God for which I'm genuinely thankful and I try to enjoy for what it is while I have it. I also accept my current singleness as God's current calling on my life and his current assignment for me. And I set my heart to obey him now and walk with him now. But at the same time, I can still desire to be married and can pursue that all the while maintaining a heart of contented faithfulness, trusting in God's complete sovereignty and care. There's so much safety in that perspective. So, so if you have that perspective, if God does not cause my desires for marriage to come to fruition, then I can still trust God's giving me a good gift in singleness and assigning me a life that I can walk with Him in and please Him. All right, now, while 1 Corinthians 7 affirms Christians are free to pursue marriage, this chapter is also written with a call to single Christians to consider the benefits of singleness to the end that some might choose not to pursue marriage and would purposefully remain single. That was the case for the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? Uh, he believed he was personally free to marry if he chose. I get that from 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Paul said there, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? So Paul fit the description of the person that was described, we looked at earlier in verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 7, regarding who, who should purpose to remain, who should to remain single, who should plan to remain single. Those who firmly decided in their heart are under no necessity or restraint, have their desire under control, and have determined this in their heart. That's who should just purpose not to pursue marriage. Of course, we know there are many singles who, who don't fit that description. They do pursue marriage to some extent. And even if that doesn't come to fruition, they still are to receive it as a gift and as a calling for now. But some should purpose not even to pursue marriage if they fit this description. Well, all right, that raises the question, 
Why would anyone make that determination in their heart? Why would someone firmly resolve that they will not pursue marriage like Paul did? Well, that's the next truth in our outline, that singleness, like marriage, has some advantages. Paul makes the case in verses 32 through 35 of 1 Corinthians 7. So if your Bible's not open again to 1 Corinthians 7, I'll ask you to to do that. I want you to be free from anxieties, Paul says. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. 34, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, for your advantage, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul doesn't want someone to choose not to pursue marriage because they're forced to, but rather because they see the benefit. That was the word in verse 35, the advantages, namely undivided devotion to the Lord, or or as some translations have it, undistracted devotion to the Lord. That was the beginning of verse 34. Uh, The married person has more divided interests. And as the beginning of verse 32 put it, the the single person has more freedom from anxieties. They have less to be anxious about, less cares and concerns and earthly responsibilities to worry about. All right, we have to be very careful how we understand and teach these verses. So I'm I'm going to err on the side of over-explaining because I think it's so easy to to misunderstand. And uh, some of you are thinking, yeah, you you err on that side quite often, but um, that's just my nature, I guess. I'm going to do it again. All right, it is not the case that, that Paul is saying here that married believers are, or should be, half-hearted in their devotion to God. Devoted partially to pleasing God and partially to pleasing their spouse. No. The married believer is to wholehearted, fully commit to pleasing the Lord in all things, but the way they go about that in part is by pleasing their spouse. It isn't the case. You shouldn't understand these verses to say, singles only have to worry about the first great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Whereas the married person has to worry about the second great commandment. Also, love your neighbor as if that was in competition with the first commandment somehow. No. Scripture teaches that that one of the main ways we express love of God is through love of neighbor, and especially our closest neighbors, like our spouses. So so what what is being taught here, 1 Corinthians 7? When married people think about how to please the Lord, how they will live for the Lord, they've got a lot more they need to take into account. They need to think about what will please their spouse and what needs their children have, etc. when they think about, how can I please the Lord? When a married person looks out at their life and they think, how can I be faithful to God with everything he's given me? They've got more responsibilities crowding their field of vision. There's more they need to consider than would be the case if they were single. There are more balls in the air. There are more plates to keep spinning. There are more cares to 
to carry. I mean, for, for my family, for me to decide my, that we're going to leave and go to church, that, that takes like 30 minutes to get everyone in the van and et cetera, et cetera. It's more complicated. Pleasing the Lord, going to church pleases the Lord. That's more complicated when you're married with children. So, so that, I think that, that's kind of the key, that how I please the Lord in all things will be more complicated for those who are married in the sense that they'll have more divided interests, more they need to consider. I like the way John MacArthur put it in, in one of his sermons. He said, as Christians, of course, the supreme desire of our heart should be to please the Lord in everything. But when you get married, you have to filter that through your concern for your partner and a family. Or, or returning to Paul's language, again, the married man's interests are more divided. He's got more concerns on his plate. A single person is able to be more single-minded in strategizing how they can live for God's glory. And, and here's another phrase we could use to explain this, that the married person will more often feel torn, divided, more, more often feel torn between various good things he could do or even should do for the Lord. Uh, Listen to how Christopher Ashe explains it um, in his book, Married for God. Paul's point is not that getting married is any better or any worse for serving God. It is simply that it introduces into our lives an enormous new complexity. Our moral obligations, the ways we love God are now worked out in a multiplicity of different or divided ways. This is not wrong, but it is more complicated and it may cause us stress or anxieties. Paul said, I want you to be free from anxieties. In addition to her, her family, kids, grandkids, etc., the way we serve God will be different. We won't be able to turn back the clock to choose to serve God some other way. So as a pastor, Paul writes in love to warn them to go into marriage with eyes open. It will make their lives more complicated. And so, in some sense, it may be more of a challenge for them to learn to love God with undivided devotion. Although, thank God, it must still be possible. And it is. If it wasn't, then then marriage wouldn't be as good. Now, again, to be clear, this is not to say the life of every single person is freer and less complicated than every married person. You shouldn't assume assume just because someone's free, that uh, single, they've got a lot of time on their hands. Sometimes, right, it's because they've got to work and do all of the errands, etc., etc. They can't divide up those labors. Single people can be very busy. I think the point is that each single person will have less, um, less on their plate in comparison with what would be true for them when and if they were married. Not, not necessarily that their life is is simpler than every married person's life, but their life is simpler than what their life would be if they were married. I think that's the best way to understand that. So they're freer now than they might be later to build up the body of Christ in various ways, to fulfill the Great Commission, to devote themselves to good works that might be risky or might require action at the drop of a hat. That's the big benefit of singles for a believer, undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, Jesus taught that that some Christians also would choose to forego marriage for this purpose. Uh, In Matthew 19, he talked about those who would make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, literally, eunuchs were men who were um, physically emasculated. Often men would suffer this fate because um, uh, a ruler wanted this person to be especially devoted to serving him, to serving a king. Uh, eunuchs would be free to be especially devoted to serving the king without the distractions of needing to leave and care for their own families. So, so when Jesus in Matthew 19 talks about how some would be eunuchs for the kingdom, he's not, he's not literally commending self-mutilation. He says some will make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. He's not commending self-mutilation any more than earlier in Matthew he was when he said if you cut your hand off, when it causes you to, uh, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So in the same way, he's speaking metaphorically here about those who, who choose not to pursue a life of marriage and children. It's for the sake of being devoted in an undivided and undistracted way to serving the king. So that's Matthew nineteen twelve. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, chosen to forgo marriage and children, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So, so here in that verse, we affirm that while some people will right, choose that life for, for the ability of having a more singular, simple focus on the kingdom, Jesus also affirms some people will end up in that state without choosing it for themselves, Right? There's some eunuchs who have been that way from birth. Some are made that by men. Some people will be single because of um, maybe some birth defect they have. Some people will be single not because they want to be. Well, what about them? What about those who don't choose it? I think we come to a really important counseling principle here. The godly advantages of singleness are available to all singles, no matter how much their singleness is their own choice. Singles who strongly desire to marry and are actively pursuing marriage still have an opportunity to live a life of less divided kingdom interests in the present. So that, that's on your handout as unbeliever, un, <laughs> uh, unmarried believers should seek to take advantage of the godly advantages of singleness for as long as they're single. Or to put it differently, they should try to be good stewards of the gift of singleness for as long as God gives it to them. We should encourage all unmarried Christians, don't waste your singleness. Instead of spending time thinking, do I have the gift of singleness? Instead of spending all your time thinking, do I want the gift of singleness? Spend quite a bit of time thinking, how can I make the best use of these unique godly benefits that my current singleness affords me? How can I be a good steward before God of my relative freedom from earthly anxieties? Being able to be more single-minded in how I can minister to others and, and personally pursue the Lord. I think this can be a, a paradigm-shifting piece of counsel. Very helpful that we can help others think about their singleness, especially if it's undesirable to them, especially if they strongly desire to be married. I think singles who do try to think about how can I be a good steward of the unique opportunities I have while I'm single, they will likely not have as difficult of a time being content with the calling God is giving them. It will be easier for them to see some of the good purposes of God's providence in his determination that they be 
single for the time being. It's hard to accept singleness as a gift if you don't pursue any of the advantages of the gift. Generally speaking, right, it's always easier to be content and happy in the Lord when you're busy in ministry and good works. And, and so along these lines, we should warn people that being a good steward of the gift of singleness is not something that happens automatically. The godly advantages of singleness can be squandered or even be twisted and used for sinful or selfish purposes. First Timothy 5, just, just like people can twist and misuse the gift of marriage for sinful or selfish purposes, singles can do the same with the grace gift God's giving them. So single believers must be careful not to squander the special opportunities they have for undivided devotion to the Lord. After all, they may not have those advantages later in life when they marry. Remember the warnings of 1 Timothy 5 against the kind of life that might be adopted by some of the widows. It it was selfish indulgence and idleness. So, So single Christians need to be intentional to stay busy in ministry to others instead of using their freedoms to become idle or self-focused. Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.32, singles are free from anxiety, free. But to use Paul's words in Galatians 5.13, they should not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but as an opportunity through love to serve the body. So, so here we see the biblical perspective on the advantages of singleness is the exact opposite of the world's perspective of the advantages of singleness. According to the world, it's good to be single because you're free to please and serve yourself. According to the Bible, it's good to be single because you're more free to give yourself away for others, to please and serve God in service of Christ's kingdom. Now listen to the way that um, Sam Alberry describes this principle in, in his book, Seven Myths About Singleness. He writes as a pastor who also, he himself is single. So writing as a single, two singles says, there are dangers that come with the less complicated single life. Paul is assuming that we singles will be anxious about the things of the Lord. This is a battle for many of us. It's easy to channel our flexibility and energies into merely pleasing ourselves rather than God. A significant temptation for many singles, especially if we live on our own, is to become self-centered. I can easily become anxious about the things of me instead of the things of the Lord. It's easy to do what I want, how I want, when I want. I don't have a significant other to flex around. If I want to go out, I can. If I want to have some space for myself, I can. For us singles, it's much easier to eat when we want, to sleep when we want. We need to remind ourselves daily that our singleness is not for us but for the Lord it's not for our concerns but for his now I could write a very similar paragraph detailing the temptations of selfishness in marriage couldn't I I, so so I'm not trying to say that singles might be more tempted to live with self-focus but we still have to say this is an important point of stewardship that Christian singles need to consider. It's a dangerous temptation they need to be on guard against. Okay, Remind yourself daily that singleness is an advantage to be especially anxious for the things of the Lord. Singles should 
take advantage of this unique season of life for as long as they have it, no matter how much or how little they've chosen to be single. Singleness is not a time to especially focus on pampering oneself, but to especially focus on pursuing the Lord and service and ministry and evangelism with personal abandon. All right, so here are some applications for this aspect of a biblical perspective on singleness. Maybe homework questions. Have people ask, how can I, as a single, maximize my relative freedom from anxieties, verse 32, in undivided interests, verse 34, for the cause of Christ and the building up of his body? And here are some more specific questions along these lines to help people think specifically. What could I do to serve God and his people in my current singleness, which would be more difficult for a married person? Or what are some ways I could serve the Lord and his people in my current singleness, which would be more difficult for me if I marry in the future? It's a good homework assignment to ask people to write down some answers to that and then ask them to begin pursuing one or two of those ministries or good works. Here's another good set of application reflection questions. This again from Christopher Ash. Think of the best Christian unmarried role models you know. What have you learned from them? How are they serving God? In what ways do they serve God that would be difficult or impossible if they were married, especially if they had children? The ministry of the Apostle Paul is a great example, isn't it? Think of how wide his ministry was, how much travel it involved, how much suffering it involved, how many different people he watched over and coordinated with and worked alongside. It's it's hard to imagine Paul could have executed this unique ministry if he had been married. Now, on the flip side, here's another application point related to the advantages of singleness. On your handout is number two. For those who desire to remain single, for those who do, and and choose not to pursue a spouse, even just for right now, consider your motives. Are your reasons for foregoing marriage the godly advantages of singleness outlined in 1 Corinthians 7? Perhaps you need to repent of sinful, self-serving motives. And if you do, should you now reconsider a pursuit of marriage or recommit to singleness, at least for now, for godly purposes? Good self-examination questions. Singleness does have some advantages, as does marriage. And so we should teach the biblical advantages of singleness. Not to lay restraint on any single concerning future marriage, but for their benefit that Paul says to promote their undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, here's a related point, the next one on your outline. A fifth truth to help build a biblical perspective on singleness. Point E, singleness, like marriage, has unique joys and hardships. Now, the scripture affirms the blessings and joys of marriage. There are several scriptures we could turn to. One of them is Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. And yet, on the other hand, Paul says in the chapter we've been studying, there are some worldly troubles that are unique to marriage. Uh, 7.28, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So Paul wants these single people to see the unique advantages they have in their current marital state, but he also... He doesn't want them to think getting married will automatically make their life easier. 
Singleness is hard at times, yes. But marriage is hard at times. Marriage is wonderful, but it's not always easy. And, and there are many believers, aren't there, who are part of marriages that are incredibly difficult. Um, I've heard MacArthur make the point that, that in many ways it's easier to be unhappily single than it is to be unhappily married. There are worldly troubles that are unique to marriage from which people are single from which single people are spared. That that is the Bible's word in verse twenty eight. Uh, we, we should not think that if we move from single to married, we are moving from a state that was full of trouble to another state that's not. In this world you will have trouble, whether you're married or single. And Jesus' teaching about singleness seems to affirm the same point. Turn to Matthew 19, uh, the passage we read earlier about those who are eunuchs for the kingdom. That comes right after Jesus teaches about God's plan for the permanence of marriage. So Matthew 19 in in your Bibles. And we're going to especially note the disciples' response to Jesus' teaching on marriage. And then Jesus' response to that. Okay, so the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorced you remember this they're trying to trap him and and jesus says what god joins together let not man separate and the pharisees counter well then why does the law of moses allow divorce and jesus responds because of your hardness of heart but this was not god's intention from the beginning for marriage so now look in verse 9 this is the final summary statement of jesus's teaching on marriage, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Don't think if you're going to get married that, that this is a, a relationship that has a lot of back doors. You can exit if, you, if you're just because you're not happy with some reason. Marriage is a lifelong covenant. Now look at how the disciples respond to this teaching of marriage and divorce. In verse 10, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Lord, if that's the way it is, if then singleness seems preferable. I mean, marriage sounds hard if those are the terms, if the stakes are that high. And Jesus doesn't correct them. In some ways, he seems to affirm their assessment that they've understood correctly. God's standard for marriage is very high. Then Jesus teaches right after that is, is, well, and some believers will choose never to marry for the sake of the kingdom. That verse 11, but Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. There's actually a lot of controversy about what um, the way verse 12 ends means. But the the simple point I want to draw out here is that a sober-minded view of marriage does not always lead one to say, oh, it's so much better to marry. The disciples said the opposite. And Jesus answered, those to whom it is given will receive this same. So there are some hardships that are unique to marriage. Becoming one flesh with another sinner. But on the other hand, 
like marriage, there are difficulties associated with singleness. And the metaphor Jesus chose for describing kingdom-focused singleness becomes a eunuch, is is becoming a eunuch. Um, I, I think that's likely meant to indicate that foregoing marriage will involve sacrifice. And there will be difficulty. It will be costly in some respects. And, and consider again the way Paul describes his singleness in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, choosing not to marry is a right he has given up for the sake of being ministered, ministering to others. So I think that also implies that singleness does involve sacrifice. It implies there, there is difficulty in the single life. All right, it, it, it doesn't help anyone to pretend like being single isn't a trial at times. Just like it isn't helpful to have an overly romantic view of marriage that imagines marriage is always a cakewalk. The New Testament teaches us not to be naive about either marriage or singleness. Both have unique hardships associated with them. I think this is really important to, re- to remember, to affirm Singleness does not inherently involve suffering any more than being married inherently involves suffering. There are hardships associated with both. We also need to add to to make this point complete, a complete circle, 1 Corinthians 7 affirms there are joys unique to singleness too. I'm going to read in verse 39 to pick up the context. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. Boy, this... Do you, have you felt during this teaching the fine biblical line we need to walk? I do, almost like whenever I say something positive about singleness, I feel the urge I need to say, oh, but, 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 don't, don't think that marriage isn't wonderful, and, when, and, and vice versa. You need to keep the balance of the scriptures. Okay, 1 Corinthians, there, there are joys unique to singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, 40. Uh, again, I'm, I'm beginning in verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be remarried to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. (laughs) Paul doesn't just say, in my judgment, she is more useful to the kingdom if she remains single. In my judgment, she is happier. Paul knew there are some joys that are unique to singleness. Singleness is not just a gift of God that bites. It's not just a cross to bear and bleed on. There's something to enjoy in it. There is something blessed about godly Christian singleness. A single person should not assume they would be happier if they had the chance to be married. Again, uh, I like the way Sam Alberry puts it in his book that I read from earlier, Seven Myths About Singleness. He says, The fact is, both singleness and marriage have their own particular ups and downs. The temptation for many who are single is to compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. And the temptation for some married people is to compare the downs of marriage with the ups of singleness, which is equally dangerous. The grass will often seem greener on the other side. So remembering this truth affirmed in 1 Corinthians 7, that singleness like marriage has unique joys and hardships 
That can help cut the root of envy, can't it? It can help root up discontentment. It can even help to work against that poisonous notion that God is not being very good to me or very gracious to me or very generous to me while he is giving me the gift of singleness. The grass is not always greener with the gift God is giving to someone else. So so singles should seize the unique advantages of singleness and should avoid thinking that marriage has no disadvantages. Next truth in building a biblical perspective on singleness. Singleness, like marriage, can display the glory of the gospel and the Christian's hope for eternity. Can it? Wow. All right, marriage, we know, points to the eternal union of Christ and his bride, the church. But when this ultimate eternal marriage comes to pass, all the signs meant to point to it, like our earthly marriages, will come to an end. Or you could say they'll be fulfilled We don't need the sign that points forward to the reality when the real thing arrives. And so we can say, there's a sense in which all believers will be single in heaven. In the sense of not being married to each other. Is everyone okay for me to flip the slide? Matthew 22, 29, 30. Jesus taught this explicitly. Do you remember the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus? The question about the resurrection. That, hey, if a woman is widowed six times and so has seven different husbands, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. All earthly marriages are like grass or the flower of the field. They're passing away like everything else about this current life. One one pastor wrote uh, on the Banner of Truth website, Jeff Thomas, he said, human marriage is not the final destination of anyone. It is the temporal phase of some people. So in this age we might marry, but in the coming age we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And that's because the flip side truth here is all believers will be married in heaven in the sense of participating in the ultimate marriage of Christ and his church. Revelation 19 talks about the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. The end of the age when the church enters into her final blessedness, her eternal face-to-face communion with her Lord. I read an article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling once. It was a good article called Premarital Counseling for Married People. And he was talking about giving married couples premarital counseling in the sense of in preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he was saying that if you find your current marriage to be a disappointment, use that to your advantage. It's, it's supposed to be in some ways a disadvantage because it should point you toward what's ultimate. It's not your current marriage. It's the marriage that's coming. And, and he said, uh, you will have the happy marriage that you dream of one day. And we can say the same thing to, to single people, can't we? 
Because all believers will be married in heaven in the sense of participating in the ultimate marriage of Christ in the church. And that's the wedding that single Christians should look forward to and long for most. And all married Christians should be right there beside them. And so, thus, the marital status of all believers can be a testimony that points to the glory of the gospel and our coming eternal hope. How so? For singles, the church is now like a pure virgin betrothed to Christ. That is, unmarried, waiting for the bridegroom to return and take his bride to move from a state of being single and engaged to the marriage supper where, where we enter into our blessed union. So I'm getting this from 2 Corinthians 11:12, where Paul told the church in Corinth, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And Jesus talked about his return as the bridegroom showing up, didn't he? So, a Christian single's satisfaction in Christ reminds all of us our earthly marriages are not ultimate. A single person's contentment in Christ is rooted in the same reality that all earthly marriages are pointing to. Both can display the glory of the gospel. In one sense, we could say the single person who's loving and looking forward to being united with Christ, that that most directly corresponds to the joyous eternal state of the Christian. So there's a special way in which singleness can display the glory of Christ, just like there's a special way in which marriage can display the glory of Christ and magnify His great worth. Don't ever let a single person say, I wish I could get married so I could be a... So, so I could be a testimony to the gospel more than I am now. Again, permit me to read one more quote from Sam Alberry. This one's on your handout. I thought this was well said. He says, If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. This is why the church needs single people, not as a supposedly endless source of free babysitting but to remind us that the joy and fulfillment of marriage in this life is partial, can only be temporal. The presence of singles who find their fullest meaning and satisfaction in Christ is a visible, physical testimony to the fact that that the end of all our longing comes in Jesus. Elsewhere, Albury said, singleness is a way of saying that my marriage to Christ is so sufficient I trust it will be so rich and satisfying that it's possible for me to do without human marriage in this age. And I think Paul's counsel in 1 Corinthians 7 makes use of this same theology, that our union with Christ, our eternal hope in Him, it it relativizes the importance of what else we might have or not have in this life. I listed two examples of that in 1 Corinthians 7. Remember about the slave and and the free man? Don't be overly concerned about your social status, slave or free. But then next he says, because there's a higher eternal reality to which you belong. 1 Corinthians 7.21, were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Why, Why not be concerned about it? Verse 22 gives the reason for 
He who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. There's a higher reality that matters more. You're a freed man in the Lord, even if you're a slave. You're a slave of the Lord, even if you're a free person. We, we can make a parallel point regarding marital status. Are you single? Don't be overly concerned about it. You're part of the bride of Christ. Are you married? We will soon be like the angels in heaven, neither married nor given in marriage. So don't let the goal of changing your marital status consume you. There's a higher marital reality you're a part of. There's a more important eternal marital status of singleness and, and, and married that's yours in Christ. So you can focus most of your focus on, on trying to display that reality in the way that you're married or in the way that you're single, even if you're pursuing a spouse. Now, a more direct application to one's marital status is, is the theological reasoning we find in verses 29 through 31. Those verses say, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. What does he mean by that? Look down in verse 31, the end of it. For the present form of this world is passing away. All right, now back up to 29. The appointed time has grown very short. This life's going to be over soon. This age is going to be over soon. Jesus is coming soon. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Even married people are not supposed to make their earthly marriages ultimate. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. So we should not treat the joys and sorrows that we have in this life as if they're ultimate. We should not count our earthly possessions and economic dealings as if they involve things we get to keep ultimately. Buy as if you had no goods. Deal with the world as if you had no dealings with it. And in the same way, we should not count earthly marriage our greatest treasure. And the way I summarize this on your handout is um, in light of eternity, believers should be careful not to ascribe ultimate worth to earthly marriages that we may or may not get to enjoy in this short life. So here are a couple of potential applications or homework assignments that rise from this point. On your notes... List out several ways in which your singleness can be used to show the glory of the gospel and our eternal hope in Christ. And then pray through that list point by point at least three different days before we meet again. Or strategize how you might leverage future conversations and questions about your singleness for gospel opportunities. Now the next thing you need to know, we're going to have to run a little faster here. Singleness does not mean aloneness. God's verdict in Genesis 2.18, I think, applies to singles too. God looked upon Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. And then God solved Adam's problem of aloneness in the garden by fashioning a wife for him. I don't think we should therefore conclude that marriage is the only way that God ever rescues people from the problem of aloneness. I think when God says it's not good for man to be alone... That applies to singles too. Singleness should not leave a believer without love and family. We think, first of all, of the eternal family bonds of the church. Peter said, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. What do we have? And Jesus said, a lot. 
a hundredfold now in this time, not just later in heaven, now houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. How's that true for us now in this life? The church, the church is an eternal family and we have all things in common. Those who follow Jesus gain family members a hundredfold. Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, treat older men in the church as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Single Christians are not without family. And we need to remember these church family ties will last far longer than even our earthly marriages will. The church is eternal family. Second, the New Testament speaks of the possibility of begetting and nurturing spiritual children. So the Apostle Paul, a single man, had lots of them. He called Titus my true child in a common faith. He called Timothy my true child in the faith. He told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4, Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He goes on, okay. Um, now, on the other hand, Romans sixteen thirteen. I, I love this verse. The Apostle Paul talks about a lady in the church in Rome who had been like a mother for him. He says, greet Rufus and his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Can you imagine that? Spiritually mothering the Apostle Paul. All Christians, whether single or married, should aim to beget and nurture spiritual children and should, should cultivate and enjoy these eternal bonds of the church family. Now, a third reason that singleness does not mean aloneness is because of the very profound affection and companionship that can come from true friendships. Or as you have it on your handout, the relational intimacy of holy friendship. Now, is any friendship in the Bible described more intimately than David and Jonathan? Boy, it's amazing to read. It, it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. David utters a lament over the death of his friend Jonathan when he says, Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. A couple of Proverbs indicates the love and closeness of friendship can exceed that of a blood brother. A man of many companions may come to ruin. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18.24. Proverbs 18.18. 18, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. When you, when you really need help, call your brother. A friend loves at all times. <laughs> and we also remember Jesus called his disciples friends. This is an, an intimate term. It, it, he emphasized how, how much he was sharing himself with them and disclosing his purposes to them. We should not underestimate the profound closeness and love and companionship that is possible in holy friendship. In our culture, ugh, one of the great losses of, of how our culture is hypersexualized and overly sexualized anything, everything, is it undermines just holy, pure friendship. As if that should be viewed as something that's suspicious. 
Now, I'm not trying to say friendship is as close a bond as marriage. That, that isn't the case. We don't say two friends become one flesh. Uh, one flesh, two fully share one mortal life. The oneness of marriage is comprehensive. Without, it's a oneness without boundary. And even the deepest friendships are not like that. They should not be like that. But friendship is still really wonderful. And generally speaking, single people will likely be able to develop and sustain more deep friendships than married people will because of of how all-encompassing God's design for oneness in marriage is. So we could file that insight under the last main point as well, unique joys and hardships in both singleness and marriage. Now we should also remember an important practical expression of Christian family love, which is hospitality. And this hospitality is more important than you realize. And most of the best resources that I listened to or or read about singleness emphasize the importance of hospitality. It's, It's got a special emphasis in the New Testament too. If the church is a family, they need to live like it. It should be common for us to be in each other's homes and for us to eat at each other's tables. That's what families do. Hospitality is important for the whole church family, but perhaps especially so for singles who are much more likely to live by themselves. So married people should should seek to fold singles into their homes and families through frequent hospitality. And singles should try and find ways to practice hospitality themselves, brother singles, uh, but for married couples as well. And, you, and married couples with children, you can get creative somehow to do that. May, maybe say, hey, could I come to your house with dinner and, and I'll bring the dinner. Would love to look up those verses. Let me point out just one. Psalm 68.6 says, God settles the solitary in a home. And believers should want to be used of God in that way to open their homes to singles in the church family. So practical applications, homework. How much are you actively pursuing life as a family with your fellow church members? How could you do that more? How much are you initiating and accepting hospitality with your fellow church members? How might you seem to do that even more? Okay, think about the example of the Apostle Paul, the single man. His letters are full of so much love and affection and plans to come visit people, right? He has so many meaningful relationships. The Apostle Paul was single, but he was not alone. That is for sure. Last main point, and I'll just have to give you the the blanks. Singleness does not mean incompleteness. Each person fully images God as an individual. If we have Christ, we need nothing else to complete us in any sense. Now, many today speak as if marriage and or especially sex are essential for human identity or for full human experience. I think especially the LGBTQ movement um, says this. If I can't have sex as I desire, then you are denying me my full humanity. But this is not true. The perfect, fully human life of Jesus proves that neither marriage nor sex is essential to experiencing full or authentic humanity. Jesus was single and celibate, and his life was not incomplete or subhuman in any way. Furthermore, we will not be fully we will be fully human in eternity. 
even though we will not marry one another. Sure. Mm-hmm. All right, I wish we had time to spend more time on that. And also, just on seeing all of these truths together, I think these are eight bricks that help build a biblical perspective on singleness. Let's close in prayer. God, we are thankful that your word addresses everything sufficiently, including this topic. God, I pray that you would help us to digest these truths in ways that, um, again, we can bless and build up all of the body of Christ. God, I thank you also for the food we're about to enjoy. I pray that you would help us to enjoy it in a way that honors you as the uh, giver of every good gift. Just like marriage and singleness, we receive now this food, our daily bread, as your gift to us. Thank you for it, Father. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.